excited for in a minute, but before that, I want to introduce today's speaker is our own Nate Jones. Nate is a uh, Nate was a youth group kid and uh, came up through our, our youth program. He's he's now a man and a husband to Casey and a dad to Hudson. He is a CMC. We like acronyms in our church family. Um, Conference ministerial candidate, which means we've recognized that he has gifts for ministry and he's moving towards that in his life. And I can also tell you that he has excellent taste in sausage. We shared lunch at a hipster um, verst house in Santa Ana week before last, which was really great. So again, so glad you're here. So glad Nate's going to be here. Let me pray and then we'll move on with our conversation series with Nate taking the lead today. Gracious Father, we really are thankful that you are making all things new. But Father, help us to have the eyes to see the way that those things are new right now. And help us have the hearts to believe and the courage to believe that they'll be new in the ways that we don't quite see yet. Father, we pray today that you have already been and will continue to be blessed and made happy by what we do today. Father, bless Nate and the rest of us as we open up the scriptures together. Help us to hear what you have to say. Help us to do what you want us to do. Help us to say what you want us to say. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who or what is God? God is a being... And I use the word being loosely because he's bigger than a being uh, that uh, is not confined to our material world but can step in and dips into it. He is the source of life and love and everything we know. Um, Who or what is God? Oh, that, that's a good one. Uh, well, Jesus, but also a trinity of persons. So... Yeah, I'm going to go with Trinity. It's an easy question, but it's also really, like, broad. Uh, God is the creator and sustainer God of everyone and everything. Everything. He's eternal, <laughs> infinite, and unchangeable in his uh, power and perfection. He's the creator, he made everything. Goodness he, and glory, wisdom, justice, and you truth. You know, knows everything, but personally, Nothing he, happens except through him and by his will. I call him daddy. He exists as three co-equal persons of the same substance in one being. I tell him everything, and he, you know comforts me when I'm upset and I share my good news when I'm happy and great question I have no answer for you just kind of like that really good best friend that's there when I need him the thing that the universe depends on and and needs and the thing that I depend on and need God is outside of knowledge outside of anything that I as a human can comprehend. Both one of us and not one of us. God is the projection of humanity's best and sometimes even our worst imaginations about ourselves and the world. God is an entity that we are unable to comprehend. So I think it's really interesting. There's no universal answer to that question. Uh, one of the people said, uh, you know, it's very simple, but also very broad, and just, there's just no universal answer. And so 
one thing that's kind of cool about that is every one of those answers was also very limited. You know, I was thinking about my own answer and how limited it is. You know, trying to fit it in just, you know, one sentence and trying to figure out, you know, would my answer make the cut, right? Would, who, whoever asked that question and then compiled all the answers, would, would my answer make the cut? And then uh, so I started judging other people's answers, like, why did theirs make the cut, you know? Um, but I was, like, uncomfortably aware of how limited my answer was and how each one of their answers were as well. Um, but then the whole, all the people that answer that question, give us a better understanding of the answer. Um, now, there are some of those answers that I thought were wrong. That's OK. There were some that I didn't resonate with, like uh, the, the girl who says, oh, I, I call him daddy. <laughs> like, like, that is just not how I see God. I don't even want my own son calling me daddy. It's papa. You know, like, it, like, like but that's OK, because her experience tells me something about who God is. Her experience with God lets me know something about him. And that's what we're going over today, is that our experiences really are our experiences. And they're going to shape how we see God. And each one of our answers are not right. <laughs> but the collective really give us a good understanding of who God is. Now, while it's interesting to me, it's also terrifying. Because what if I'm wrong? Right? Like, like I base my whole life off the answer to, to this question. And what if I'm wrong? And what if everybody's wrong and we're all just doomed? Because there's no universal answer. You know, th there's, there's a discomfort with, it not, with there not being an answer. And I would really like there to just be an answer. Right? I, would, I want there to be... When someone asks me this question, I say this string of words, and I've got it right. I get my gold star from Jesus, and we're all good to go. But there's not. Um, and so we are in our conversation series. And the conversation, conversation series is we are in a conversation with God, and we believe that God can handle all our questions, all our fears, all our doubts, all our everything. He's big enough. There's nothing off the table. We're good to go. But... If the conversation ends there with just us asking questions, we're going to fall short. So we're going to look at some questions that God has for us. We've been going over these questions since Easter. And one of my favorite uh, examples of this in the Bible is when, you know, Job is having a terrible life. Like when someone's like, how's your day? He's like, not very good. And so he goes to God and he says, like, what's going on? And God says, brace yourself like a man. I've got some questions for you. And so that's kind of the theme that we've been going over is, is yeah, God's got some questions for us. And so when Pastor John gave me the question, I was like, sweet, I'm going to do it. I got, I got this one, no problem. And then someone said, uh, what, which, which verse are you using? Because the question comes from three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not in John. So I'm like, I don't know yet. So I, I printed them all out, verse by verse, and lined them all up, and the, then I could see the similarities and the differences, and and I was reading them over and over and over and over and over, and I was like, which one do I want to do? I like them all. Like, there's subtle differences. There's subtle, uh, like, just, just phrases that I liked in each one. And I remember years ago, I was like, I want to make, like, a super gospel. I'm just going to, like, mash them all together. And then that way, when I, I only have to do, like, a, a quarter of the reading, 
right? Because then I can read all the Gospels in one book. And I was really pumped on it. And a friend of mine goes, yeah, you don't want to do that. And I'm like, why? And he said, well, each Gospel writer had his own experience with God. Each Gospel writer is writing to a certain group of people. Each Gospel writer has his own voice. And if you're going to mash it all together, you're going you're gonna to take that voice from them. And I was like, yeah, and it sounds like a lot of work, so I bet you're right. Yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. But here we are again, and I'm like, what, what are we going to do? Like, what, what, what set of verses are, are we going to go through? So I brought this idea up to another scholarly smart person. He said, yeah, you probably don't want to do that. But I said, well, I'm doing it. So we're going we're gonna to just do like, just like this super gospel today. And so before you're like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. I know. But, um, but there's these, these subtle differences that I just really, really liked. And it wouldn't work for us to go through each gospel, right? We don't have the time. I'm not that entertaining. Um, but there's also some similarities that are also really cool. So the story starts like this. Um, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And this is not the question. We're going to get in there, but it is a question, but just not the question. But I really appreciate the timing of the question. Because rightly so, we compartmentalize our life, right? Like, when I'm at work, I want to do work stuff. I don't want to worry about home stuff. I just want to do work stuff. When I'm not at work, I don't want to do work stuff. For example, I got a call this morning. It was a work call. I was just like, I'm not available. I'm at church. I'm not at work. I'm at church. And so it's totally appropriate to do that. And even Jesus did it, right? There were times where he taught. There were times where he healed people. There were times where he uh, went off in solitude and prayed. Like, it's totally appropriate. But Jesus is having this conversation in between. They're on their way to some place to go do ministry. Because ministry's not happening right now. We're going to go do ministry, right? It's kind of the thought. And Jesus is saying, nope. Everything's sacred. Nothing's mundane. And so I think that we can have these conversations with Jesus on our way to work, on our way to church, at church, at work, with our friends and family, on our way to doing life, because it's not mundane, sacred, right? Jesus wants to have these conversations with us. And number two, this is just the primer question, right? This is, it's very non-confrontational. It's not about the disciples. It's saying, hey, who do people, who do the crowds say that I am? And so it's kind of an easy question. For example, um, I walked into work one day. There's this dent in the side of the wall. Oh, yay big. And I put my fist up to it. And sure enough, it's pretty much the size of a man's fist. So went and looked at the security camera because we have those. Uh, and sure enough, there's an employee on the phone, punches the wall, takes a painting, and tries to put it in front of it. <laughs> and that's not how it works. Like, it's called gravity, right? You can't just put things on the wall. They... they you need the command strips or whatever. So then he leaves, and so I call him into my office. Hey, there's a hole in the wall. You know anything about that? That's the primer question. I'm setting the table. Like, obviously, we're going somewhere. If you were to just go, yep, I do. Be like, would you care to elaborate? Right? And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, we're setting the table. We're going somewhere. It's safe. It's giving them the opportunity to be on board with where they're going. He's not just pulling something out of left field. And uh, they actually have an answer. Uh, 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets of long ago, has come back to life. So essentially, it's some religious figure, some spiritual figure that they understood, that they could contain, that they had seen before. Which is weird to me because, like, coming back to life isn't a thing that they were really into. Uh, like, this doesn't really happen. And John the Baptist was, like, head separated from body, not living. But for some reason, that was, like, more feasible to them than who Jesus really was. But before we really harp on the crowd, think about it. There's no Twitter, there's no social media, there's no news, there's no TV, there's no way for information to be passed around. So it's just kind of rumors, and so they hear, oh, some dude who's preaching the word again, right? We've had these people come and preach about God, and he's doing stuff, and he's healing people. Yeah, he must be one of the prophets. So it's actually an acceptable answer, I guess. I mean, it's, we tend to see ourselves as the disciples, right? Because we, we kind of have an inside scoop, because we can read all the text, and we can uh, talk to other people who've read all the text, and all these people figure out exactly what Jesus meant, but the crowds didn't have that luxury. Uh, but the problem with their, their narrative is that it's very narrow, right? It's one that they could contain. It was one they were comfortable with. And that's not really where Jesus wants to leave us. He really wants us to be uncomfortable, he doesn't want us to be able to put him in a box for a lack of a better analogy. He's saying, look, if your narrative is small, if your narrative can be summed up in one sentence, if it can be summed up in 140 characters, it's too narrow. You need to think broader. And again, people with small narratives like, aren't waking up in the morning going, I'm going to have a narrow mindset. I'm going to be narrow-minded. It's just their experiences lead them to that thought. Their experiences with God, their experiences with culture show them this is how the world works. And there are certain places in my life where I'm pretty narrow. When people have a broader worldview than me, I'm like, hey, you probably want to narrow it down a little bit. You know, think more like me, essentially, is what I want people to do. And when people are more narrow, then I'm like, you should think more like me. And obviously, that's not healthy. I'm just throwing that out there. But I think God wants to continually broaden our understanding of who he is. And so, Jesus has something to say. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question. That's the real question. He set the table, something not very controversial, something broad. And now he's saying, all right, now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's brutal, because at least for me, I'm like, I have no idea. I can't sum it up. I, I, you're, I, you know, it, it's, it's very personal. It's a very difficult question to ask. He says, but what about you? And so before we go any further, I don't have an answer. It's how you answer it. It's, it's how each and every one of us answer this, and it's part of that conversation that Jesus wants to have with us. But he's actually having a conversation with Peter. So Peter has an answer. 
Peter answered, you are God's Messiah, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? Like, that's one heck of an answer. You're like, way to go, Peter, right? Like, like I would just hope that my answer would be able to sum it up so concisely, so eloquently. And I've seen my life change the same way that maybe Peter saw his life change. For example, this is Peter prior to the Garden of Gethsemane when he cut the dude's ear off. This is prior to Peter denying Jesus. This is prior to Peter being reconciled with Jesus. It's prior to really the bulk of Peter's ministry. It's prior to Peter's death, right? This is, this is the vocabulary Peter had. And so I don't really know if he quite understood the theological weight of what he was saying, but he used the right words. And his interpretation of it was accurate. We'll see shortly that it was accurate. And, and I totally resonate with that. My vocabulary hasn't really changed that much as I have grown in faith, but my understanding of what those words mean do. And so it's a path, it's a journey. How we answer this question, we don't just get to answer it today and then be done with it. Jesus is going to be asking this question over and over, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Uh, And again, our tendency is to say, well, that's the answer. Jesus is the Messiah. Nobody on that audio clip said Jesus is the Messiah. They're all wrong. The answer is Messiah, right? That's our tendency. But the disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, teach us how to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer, which is a beautiful prayer. It's great to recite. Uh, We can learn a lot from it, but it's not the only vocabulary we use to come to God. It's not the only way we pray. And so Messiah, the living Messiah, loving, living son of God, those are not the only words we get to use for him. It's much deeper than that. But Jesus gives him a, a pretty solid thumbs up. He said, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. It's like, that's an A-OK response. But this was the problem with this whole teaching thing is Jesus is saying you can't be taught who I am. You have to experience me. God has to show you who I am. You have to have a relationship with me in order to know who I am. And it's like, well, I wish I could just tell people and we could just read a lot and like figure it out and have the answer. And Jesus is saying, no. I'm like, Jesus, you don't get it. I have to teach on this. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. People have to experience me. I'm like, yeah, but I got to fill up like 30 minutes. And he's like, well, figure it out. Uh, but that's the, that's the beauty is that our experiences are going to shape that answer. Our experiences show us who God is. And the collective of all of our experiences give us a better understanding of who he is versus just my experience or versus just your experience. And then uh, Jesus goes on with this long section that's only found in Matthew. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm not quite sure exactly how that applies to us necessarily, 
But what I do know is that Peter's experience was given to him by God, right? He experienced who Jesus was and got the A plus gold star answer. And Jesus goes, yes, upon that, we're going to do church. We're going to redo how we think about church. And it's by knowing me and knowing how to answer this question. And so he gives Peter some pretty lofty goals, like, hey, what you decide is right and wrong, we're going to kind of make that kosher now. And that's awesome. Like, like God wants us to experience him and have a relationship and have conversation and answer these questions from who we know he is, not who we have been told he is. Through this journey of mine of, you know, using the same vocabulary but kind of adopting new definitions to a lot of it, I've seen myself try and, and take the right answer and apply it and it just not fit. And I'm like, why do we treat people this way? Like, why do we, why do we view people this way? And it's like, well, because of this. And I put that in, and the equation of my life just didn't seem to work. Like, it, like, it didn't seem to line up. My experiences with God didn't, didn't uh, resonate with the right answer. And so, as I've been trying to push into, who are you, God? How do I truly answer this question? And when him saying, hey, just experience me. What have you experienced of me? That's where I think we find life. And then the, the whole story takes a weird turn to me. Right? There's this great A-plus answer. And then Jesus says, hey, he warns him not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And I'm like, that's weird. Because from the story... The crowds are wrong or misinformed or whatever. They just aren't, they didn't get the A-plus answer, you know, thumbs up from Jesus. Peter has the answer. And Jesus says, yeah, don't tell anyone. We're like, Jesus, that's not cool. Right? And later on, we see that Jesus tells us to go, hey, go tell all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. You're like, so at one point, you want us to tell people and at one point, you don't want us to tell people. You're crazy. <laughs> and if we look at this whole section, those people, the crowds, they all had a preconceived notion of what the word Messiah means, the same way that I have a preconceived notion of what it means to go to church. When someone invites me into their church, I'm like, no, thank you, I already go to my own church. That's better than your church. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> And Jesus is saying, wait, before we give them the vocabulary of Messiah and let them put in their own interpretations, I want them to encounter me. I want them to know me. I want them to meet me. And once they know me and have experienced me, then we get to give them the vocabulary. Then we get to say, oh yeah, that experience with Jesus, that's Messiah. And so I can't stress it enough, this whole thing with Jesus saying, who am I? Who do you say that I am? He's just saying, what's how have you encountered me? How, do you, how has your life changed because of me? How, who am I? And so there's kind of two points that I think we get from this whole story. Um, I'm not really a pointy kind of guy, but um, the first point is that Jesus is not concerned about how we answer for others. Right? Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Oh, some prophets, John the Baptist, even though you still have your head. 
And then Jesus doesn't say one way or another what he thought about their answer. He just did not care. But for me, I'd rather the question stop there because it's really easy to answer for other people. I can read a little Wikipedia article and go, oh, this is what they think about God. Cool. They're either right or they're wrong because it doesn't fit with how I view God. And Jesus just does not care how I answer for other people. However, the second point is that Jesus is concerned about how you answer for yourself. He wants to know how I answer who he is. He wants you to answer who he is. He wants the crowds to answer who he is. He just doesn't care how we answer for them. And this is super, super, super important. Um, I know in my life, back in high school, <laughs> I, remember, I remember saying to Buzzy, the youth pastor at the time, I was like, I know what God's voice sounds like. Like, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't even trying to be prideful, or I didn't even think I had like, any audacity. I just thought I had figured it out, and I was really pumped. And he goes, okay, yeah, tell me. And I was like, when I don't want to do something, and I feel like I'm supposed to, that's God. And when I do want to do something and I feel like I'm not supposed to, that's God as well. And I don't remember Buzzy's response. I just remember he wasn't like, yeah, you got it, right? Because while there's like that much truth in that, that was terribly destructive to my faith. Uh, it, It changed how I prayed. Because why would I pray for anything I want? Because God's just going to give me the other thing. So let me just start saying, God, whatever your will is, or I have to at least guess your will or something like that. Then it just just became, God, do what you're going to do and make me okay with it. Right? That's just just destructive. And so I would still use the vocabulary about how God is life-giving, how how God, you know, Jesus is is beautiful, how, how Jesus is Messiah. I would still use all that, but how it manifested itself in my life was, was really, really different and contrary to that. Um, this answer and how we answer it is really, really, really important because it truly does shape how we view and see the world. See, I've been doing some research is kind of a little bit heavy of a word, but some reading up on the brain. Um, and so this is your brain without, I mean, your brain's probably a little bit more grody looking. It doesn't have all the cool pictures. Um, and, and so really smart people who understand the brain much better than I do uh, have started studying the brain when people are praying and believe in God and contemplate God and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so they've done brain scans and they've seen what happens to our brain on God. Remember like back in the day you do like the egg thing on drugs thing? Yeah. So, we, so we've started seeing the brain on God and essentially, there's kind of two neurological camps that we get to hang out in. And so the first camp is that we believe that God is a loving God, that we believe God um, to be uh, grace or full of grace, full of mercy, um, accepting, uh, you know, the whole come as you are kind of vibe, that, that whole deal. And when people pray to contemplate and believe in a God who's loving, they see a lot of activity in their prefrontal cortex, which is in the front hence the name. Uh, and that's where all your agency, will, thought comes from, like, like 
the ability to reason and be rational, it all comes from that part of your brain. That part of your brain is the part that dictates all that. And so when you pray, that part goes all crazy. But when you pray to a loving God, uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, that part also goes crazy. And that part of the brain is responsible for compassion, um, for, for love, for all the things that give you like goosebumps and butterflies, right? Like that whole part of your brain is there. And it doesn't only light up when you pray. It gets strengthened. It's like, it's like working out for your brain. So the more you pray to and believe in and contemplate a loving God, the more loving and compassionate and accepting we become. You follow? Uh, and there's kind of a side note, but it's also really cool. Uh, Westerners, we tend to speak when we pray, and so we see a lot of activity in the temporal lobe, which, again, I've been told is where you speak from. It just looks like a blob to me. Um, but for Easterners, they, they do a lot of like meditating and visualizing, so there's a lot of activity in the visual cortex, which to me is really, really cool. Because no matter how we come to this loving God, no matter how we get there, whether it be through words or through visualization, we're going to see our brain work out the loving part. And I'm like, great. It just makes sense to me that if God is a loving God and our brain turns on the loving juice, like, fantastic. But there's a whole other camp. And that camp would be that God is angry and judgmental and wrathful and those kinds of things. And when we pray to and believe in and contemplate that kind of God, we see a lot of activity uh, in the amygdala, which is in the limbic system. Okay? And that part of your brain is where the fight or flight thing comes from, which is really, really, really important for humans to survive. When you go camping... And then there's a bear. And you shine your flashlight and you're like, that's a bear. Your brain says, stop thinking, do something. And that do something is bang pots and pans and say bear really, really loud. And your, your amygdala is what saves you from that bear. Or it tells you to go fight that bear in which you will die. <laughs> but that fight or flight is very, very, very important. But it's also where we get anger and fear from. So, when we pray to and contemplate and believe in an angry God, we ourselves become more angry. And before we miss the point, Jesus doesn't care how we answer this for somebody else. I'm not saying other people. When I believe and pray to and contemplate a God who's angry, wrathful, I become more fearful of outsiders. I become... Uh, more judgmental. Now the scary part, and the reason why I'm saying this is so, so important, is that limbic system, its job is to shut off your, your prefrontal cortex, right? When you see that bear, you're not supposed to go, well, if it's a brown bear, I'm supposed to do this, and if it's a grizzly bear, I'm supposed to do this. There are rules about that. Like, one, you're supposed to climb a tree, and the other one, if you climb a tree, you're donezo. So I don't know which one. I just do the banging the pots and pans thing. But your brain is wired to turn off the thinking part of your brain when that fight or flight gets, gets uh, activated. 
And so hear this. It is neurologically impossible to be angry and analytical at the same time. So when we're, if we see God as angry, wrathful, what have you, it's just going to make us more angry. And then we can't think straight. Like, like it's neurologically impossible. So this affects how we view people, how we view outsiders, how we view people who think differently than us. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? I think it's an important question. As the worship team returns, I kind of want to leave us with this. I feel a little awkward saying, hey, you have to answer this for yourself, but this is how you should answer it. What I really want us to get the grasp is that, man, when we experience God, that's all we got. All I have are my experiences. But knowing more about who he is and contemplating those things and realizing that it changes how I view people, changes how I act, like, like that there's some gravity to it. And so that's, that's all I think Jesus wants us to answer is so that we can be truthful to him. Hey, this is who I see you. I see you as not life-giving. Right? When I, when I see God as this rule-giver, it's like, God, like, like, help me experience you different. When people talk about this life-giving God, help me experience you that way. If our answer is, I don't know who you are, I kind of don't care who you are, there's just barbecue going on, Great! Just have that conversation with God because he wants to have that conversation. Let me pray. God, uh, we thank you that you want to speak with us, that you want to have a relationship, that you want us to experience you. I pray that uh, you would make yourself real to us, that you would show us who you are, that uh, we would see what happens when we think about you one way and not the other, and that you would shape us to, uh, to see you as you are. Uh, in this time of worship, let us just uh, soak it in and just experience you. In your name, amen.